May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 20, which along with Psalm 21 are the Psalms appointed for today, Saturday, October the 16th, 2021. Those Psalm, that Psalm, both these Psalms actually, have to do with the, the, their prayers for the king. So this would, these would have been the kind of Psalms that would have been recited when a king, new king was being installed. And so those are the plans that it's for. It's, it's praying for success for the king. And we need to be better at that as well. We, we can oppose plans while at the same time praying for the, the leaders of the nations. In the uh, passages today, we've dropped out of Jeremiah for the day and gone to Second Kings 25, verses 8 to 12, and then also verses 22 to 26. It's about the fall of Jerusalem. We're, we're seeing the end of the, the, the kingdom in, in many ways because there will be no further king after this until Jesus. So the, the next passage we've got is, is we're still in 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter, verses 12 to 29, and then the final reading would be from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 7 to 15. And unfortunately, <laughs> two of the most um, quizzical passages in the New Testament are included in these two readings today. You'll see when we get there <clears throat> why, why I say that. They're, they're, they're passages that are not easy to interpret, and there are a variety of interpretations in each case. So in the, in the second Kings passage, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. What a sad, sad day. I mean, absolutely unbelievable that the city of David laid waste. Um, it, that, that this it was to be and will be the place through all eternity where the Lord's presence is, is in the heavenly Jerusalem, which will come down <clears throat> after the great battle. And so what we see in this, though, is is that, that if, if you could imagine the splendor of Jerusalem and the, the odes that we see in the Psalms to Jerusalem and, and, and the, the thinking of the great worship that was held there, the great pilgrim festivals that had been held in that place and in the in the dedication of the temple the glory of the lord filling the temple as it had filled the tabernacle before the glory of all of this is now completely laid waste by the king of babylon and his um, emissary and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of babylon together with the rest of the multitude nebuzaradan the captain of the guard carried into exile but the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So you can see this great migration. You can just imagine all these people going to uh, Babylon in exile. We, we we're seeing so much and so many similar kinds of things in our day 
um, with these mass migrations after wars moving from one place to another or coming into the United States across our southern borders. Um, you can see these great migrations of people and just imagine what it would have been like for the for the Jewish people to leave everything they had behind and be taken into exile into Babylon and over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, the governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the governor, they came with their men to him at Mizpah, which is the place where Laban and Jacob had previously made a pact um, with one another that, to be able to trust one another not to pass over this. And so they come to this place of Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Saraiah, the son of Tanhumath, the Netophathite, and Jazaniah, the son of Machathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Don't be afraid, because the Chaldean officials live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. But in the seventh month, so it's just, now we're about six weeks later, Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, son of Elishama, the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces rose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. What an idiot! Uh, they, they, there was a promise given to them if they just serve the king of Babylon and they live in the land, then everything will be fine with you. And this one uh, Ishmael goes and decides to kill the governor. And, and so everybody who's left in the land now flees and goes to Egypt because they were afraid of what the retribution would be for this uh, act of treachery against the governor. And, and how amazing it is to see the people of Israel come full circle here and come all the way back around to going back to Egypt, the place God had delivered them from because they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So now they flee back into Egypt. It's a sad, sad thing to read about the end of the kingdom and, and what, what went awry after starting so incredibly well. In you see the same thing in the churches today. The churches of Revelation, you couldn't find them today. They don't still exist. And I've certainly seen great churches that then didn't survive the, the leaders passing, and it, it, they became a shell of their former selves. I have one particular church in mind that I grew up going to church across the street from. The church that I was in had been a great church, and my parents were there. It had been when they were uh, teenagers, it had been a very large church, and then it dwindled down and died over time. And the church across the street, when I was a kid, was enormous. It had a college and a, an academy, so a high school and everything. Uh, and, and there were thousands and thousands of people that went to that church every Sunday morning. And now, however, it, it barely exists, and it's not even on the campus that it was on when I was a kid. It, it covered multiple city blocks when I was a kid, and now there's just almost nothing left of it. It's, it's a sad, sad thing to see this happen. But, but the church itself, the, the one particular church, is less important than the kingdom of God as a whole. 
So in Matthew's gospel, they went away, John's disciples, who had come to inquire if Jesus were the one. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it's written in Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And we're greater in the sense that we end up having a more complete testimony of of, uh, the gospel than John had, because John died before the resurrection, so John didn't have a, a complete gospel. And we're blessed to know the full story to see what happens at the end of this story. And so Jesus commends us and said that that we in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John because we have that greater witness and the greater testimony. We have the full testimony in a way where John only had part of it because he was the forerunner. He said, and then this is where it comes in, right? So from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. It, it, you know, everybody says, okay, that's a bad translation and all this, and so there's, there's multiple ways. And if you look this up, passage up and say, how do you interpret this? You'll find differing interpretations all the way around on this. I, I believe, personally, that, that the, the translation suffers, but I, and so I believe that, that what it's saying is, is that we have to, to break in to the kingdom of heaven. We, we have to desire it with all our heart, and then we have to pursue righteousness with all our heart as well. And so, so we come and we want this so badly, because that's the context seems to indicate from the days of John the Baptist until now. So what does it mean the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence? What, what you saw was a revival. What you saw was, was all these, quote, sinners who John called to repent came out and broke in. And the, the, the keepers of the guard, the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, are there, and, and they see themselves as being overrun by the mass, the crowds that are coming to John, the crowds that are coming into the kingdom and who are bypassing the gatekeepers, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're ignoring them. And so that's what it means, I believe, that the violent take it by force. That is, that these are the, the, um, the, the hordes at the gates breaking their way into the kingdom of heaven in a good way by repentance and an amendment of life. He says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, so John's the last prophet of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, which is, the, again, the promise from Malachi. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, I'm speaking in, in parables here, and, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. And if you have ears, then then you will hear what I'm saying. It's important that that we storm the gates of heaven it, because we want in so badly because it's so desirable. And Paul says that he's defending the gospel. Apparently there's some in, in uh, Corinth 
who deny the resurrection, which is a very bizarre idea. Um, we know that the Sadducees did, and perhaps some of them, that leaven has infected a portion of the church in Corinth, because he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? It doesn't make any sense. His resurrection doesn't make any sense if it doesn't have an application beyond him. If it's only Jesus being raised from the dead, well, then we can all celebrate his triumph, but, but it doesn't have any meaning for us. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He said, well, you know, the proof of the resurrection is, well, resurrection. <laughs> the fact that Jesus was raised. So that's the proof of the resurrection. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's pointless. It's completely pointless without the resurrection and without the resurrection having meaning for us. He said, we're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then he, the, 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 the cross doesn't have any meaning. The resurrection doesn't have any meaning. The cross doesn't have any meaning. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then that's just a, a, a terrible tragedy that happened, that an innocent man was put to death. It's a great tragedy, but it doesn't have a lot of meaning. He says, if, if that's the case, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've died permanently. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all most to be pitied. Because we're denying ourselves pleasures that the world gets, and, and we're just a sad little group of people if he has not been raised. If, if, if the only hope we have in him is in this life, that, that it's possible to live in that kind of way, then, then we should be pitied because it's a, it's a pathetic sort of religion and an ineffective message. Why would anybody want to sign up for taking up your cross and following him if it doesn't lead anywhere? He said, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the first fruits, the the implication is that if he's the first fruits, there's more to come. He's not the only fruit. He's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came dead, Death, by, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ sh- shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul says that Jesus is reigning on earth. The kingdoms of the earth belong to him now. They were given to him by the Father in the resurrection because of the life that he lived and the death that he died. It says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So, in other words, God's not subservient 
to, to the Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So in other words, it, at the end, it's his pleasure to present to, to the Father those whom he has saved out from all the kingdoms of earth, from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's presenting, though, that pure and spotless bride, not this mixed multitude of sinners and saved people. So only when all things are put in subjection. In other words, all the enemies of the gospel, all the enemies of the kingdom have been destroyed and now raised up is this new kingdom this new thing that, that consists only of those who have been purified by the blood of Christ. And so then at that point, Jesus turns and gives all these back to the Father who has given them to him. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Uh-oh. <laughs> that's, the, that's the sort of oddball part here, right? Because that Mormons baptize people. They baptize, they get baptized on behalf of the dead for salvation. And, and what Paul is saying here is, obviously, there are people who are getting baptized on behalf of the dead for whatever reason we don't know. It's surmised that it's possible that what's happened is these people weren't previously were not baptized, but they were believers, and so they were being baptized in order to sort of effectuate that in, in the believer. In Mormon belief, Mormons believe that you're saved by good works. And so the, in Mormon belief, the baptism on behalf of the dead is for salvation. It gives them a second chance to, in purgatory-ish to do the things they could have done in this life but did not do because they weren't baptized first. And so they've got to earn that salvation. That, that there's nothing about the resurrection of the dead because Christ has been raised. And that's the only important point in this whole thing. So if the dead are not raised, then why are the people baptized? What would be the point of that? He's not commending the practice. He, he's just merely observing that this happens. But, but nowhere in Scripture would, would there be any idea or belief that you could be baptized or circumcised or whatever on behalf of a dead person and then have them brought in. That's not the way it ever works. That's not the way it's ever portrayed. And in fact, Jesus tells the parable of um, the rich man and Lazarus, right? And Lazarus is, is the poor man who is in heaven, and the rich man is in hell, separated from heaven, and he wants somebody to go back and tell them the truth. So it's not that you could be baptized. What he, what he could have said was, hey, why didn't somebody go, to, go in there and tell somebody to get baptized on my behalf real quick so I can get out of here? That's not the way it works. That, that Nowhere is that commended, and Jesus speaks specifically about that in that parable. That this is our life. This is the chance we get, and it's got to be based on faith. We've got to trust him and obey him in all things.